0: for me being a new guy there. The other guys have been there two other times in a row or five out of seven times in a row. For me, it was such a huge moment in my life. It was hard to find the place to relax your mind because you're thinking, will I ever get there? But the other guys I'm sure were like, this is like another day in the park. We've been here before, we know how to do it. You're trying to compose yourself, not trying to mess up, but it was a great learning experience. And if you can play in the NBA Finals, and play with Michael Jordan and Scotty and Dennis and Hunter Phil and the rest of the staff, it prepares you for life. And I think finding composure during those finals, when the world is watching, playing for one of the greatest teams of all time, with the greatest player of all time, and you find a way to relax your mind, put yourself in that spot in the presence of, of trying to win a championship, you know you've reached your, your, your max in your sport, and you you can accomplish anything. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball, you're talking great teams, you're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23 and of course Johnny goes nuts. So we I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about Adam, I don't like anybody, I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass? Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were
1: aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down.
0: I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for in all earnest, Adam Ryan.
1: Welcome to episode 100. Thanks for joining me. The only way to celebrate such a milestone is to discuss the Last Dance docuseries. Two guests today, my regular co-host and great pal Aaron Steen, joins me to recap episode one of the 10-part extravaganza. Then... I'm very happy to welcome 1998 NBA champion of the Chicago Bulls, Scott Burrell. In episode one of The Last Dance, Scott features in a memorable exchange with teammates Ron Harper and Michael Jordan at the 1997 McDonald's Open in France. We cover that, Scott's memories of his championship season with the Bulls, and plenty more. Stay tuned to the whole episode as Scott asks a favour near the end. If you're a young, up-and-coming Aussie-based basketballer who might be looking to head overseas and play collegiately, you might be best to reach out to Scott to see what's on offer. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. If you can spare a moment or two, please add your review via your listening app. It would be most appreciated. Show notes for this episode and access to a huge archive of past episodes are available at inallairness.com. Now, to the show. Joining me today, my great mate, Aaron Steen. How are you today, Aaron?
2: Checking in for the Bulls. I'm back, <laughs> number twenty-three, Aaron Steen.
1: <laughs> Good to have you back, mate. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. We're going to be recapping each episode of the Last Dance, the ESPN and Netflix ten-part docu-series, which has just been released worldwide. Just generally, what did you make of that first episode? Even the excitement building up to it, and uh, now that it's finally here, what do you think?
2: We discussed during the week, it was about two years ago that we first caught wind that this project was coming, Yeah, and voila, here we are. It helps that nobody has anything to do and no sports to watch, but the uh, the hype around this has been extraordinary. Yeah, just my excitement of being able to relive a lot of this stuff from when I was about 20 years old, plus also the yeah expected... New footage that they've spoken about, my goodness, you know, what a treat it is. Our good friend of the show, Todd Speer, said during the week, it's like Christmas. It really is. And I love the fact that they are not releasing them all at once. I love the fact that they're going two episodes per week over a five-week span um, because it keeps the excitement going yeah, for at least the next five weeks, yeah, with the anticipation of new episodes
1: you certainly want to have something to look forward to, particularly in this very strange time we're living in at the moment. I want to make mention of the NBA Hangtime Pod, hosted by Taku Smith. He had a great conversation with Andy Thompson, who was working for NBA Entertainment at the time. It was his brainchild, essentially, to record the Bulls during the 1998 season, which even led to what we're talking about today. Uh, Andy Thompson is, coincidentally, the brother of Michael Thompson, who played for the LA Lakers, uh, Portland Trailblazers, former number one draft pick back in the 1970s. Tremendous foresight for the NBA entertainment team who was headed up by Adam Silver at the time, of course now is NBA commissioner. Just a quick tidbit from that episode, Andy says they chose to record all this footage that we talk about, the 500 plus hours of unseen footage. It was recorded on film specifically for the fact that no matter what future technology came about that this film could then be transferred across to be the best quality footage available to watch from 1998. So we finally get a chance, as this series will unfold, to see the Bulls and Michael Jordan in high definition.
2: Extraordinary foresight. One thing that Bill Simmons says that I agree with is one thing that hurts the 80s and 90s is a lack of HD. And to be able to see all this stuff from the 90s in HD, tremendous.
1: Now, in terms of the intro itself, it plays a quick intro, which you have the option of skipping on Netflix, at least here in Australia. Uh, It's a great little 30-second clip where you see all kinds of little highlights. And importantly, just after Jordan launches that last shot in Utah in game six, it stops midway on its way to the basket, which I think is really cool. It's a great idea they did that. What do you reckon?
2: The first time that I saw this clip that you're talking about, as MJ launches that shot in Utah, I'm thinking to myself, are they going to show going through? And they don't. Clever, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely noticed it. It's a bit of a cliffhanger for those who are new to the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s in particular. Kudos to
1: ESPN who have done a great thing by releasing this when they have. Absolutely, mate. And I think uh, Jason Hare, uh, the director of the show... He said on uh, one of the podcast episodes I've listened to recently, they had the first four episodes in the can, completely done, ready to go, and then popular demand of so many people wanting it to be brought forward due to these unique circumstances that we're finding ourselves in. Uh, they managed to work on a time frame to release the two episodes per week. Couldn't be more excited, mate. The first two have really lived up to it. So let's just do a bit of a dive into episode one. Primarily focuses on setting the scene with a recap of the Bulls' first five titles we get to see in about two or three minutes. Jerry Krauss is actually shown early on in this episode saying that the Bulls following the 1998 season were going to be dismantled. It was basically going to be Phil Jackson's last season. Even if they went 82 and 0, no matter what happened, he was going to be moving on as coach. Jerry Krauss already had Tim Floyd basically penciled in as the replacement coach. And I found that to be quite stunning when they showed that footage of Krauss pre the 98 season even commenting to say that was happening.
2: How big of a revelation that is is I think only matched by the amount of dislike that there was and the amount of tension that there was in between Krauss and Phil Jackson because you look at what this Bulls team had done over the last few years and the dynasty that they were and the second three peat on its way and to preemptively break up that team and I think as Scotty said it really well, their services were no longer needed after this season, which I think was perfect.
1: It shows you how bad things were in between
2: Krauss and Phil Jackson.
1: The thing that sort of surprised me, even with as much as we know about this particular era, it's hard to not think that Jerry Reinsdorf and Krauss were complicit in letting this actually unfold the way it did. Surely, as the owner, Reinsdorf could have pulled the pin at some stage and said, Look, Jerry, enough, this has got to end, and just gets rid of Jerry Krauss and then they continue along to try and do something to avert the course. Um I sort of only started to realise this after watching this episode that why didn't Reinsdorf perhaps step in unless he was actually happy with things to change following that nineteen ninety eight season. It almost actually disbanded after nineteen ninety seven we even get revealed too, which is quite surprising.
2: There's no question that Jerry Reinsdorf was complicit as you put it with what they were going to do uh, in breaking the team up and Reinsdorf even mentions early on in episode one that he thought that, um, except for Michael, a few of the Bulls players were coming to the end of their prime years. Jerry Krause has copped a lot of stick for breaking up this team, but there's no question that Ryan Ryansoff has something to do with it as
1: well. The architect of the championship teams is Jerry Krause primarily, so I really hope he gets his due time in the limelight for that, because I feel sorry for his family They had to see the amount of derision that was held towards Krause in this first episode. I know they had to be accurate and honest, but... I felt bad for Jerry's family, to be honest, and rest in peace to Jerry Krause.
2: He had his faults, obviously, All or some of those faults were pointed out in episode one, but Jerry Krause is the man who put those teams together, all those teams, six championship teams, and I know that he didn't draft Jordan, but everything from MJ down, that was all Jerry Krause, all of those players who played their role to perfection on six championship teams, that was Jerry Krause. So. I know that he had his faults, but he was also very, very good at his job.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Steve Kerr says something along the lines of, Jerry Krause couldn't get out of his own way. And whilst that might be a very accurate summation of him, he also did a lot of great for the team. Uh, So you've got to balance that. And I hope that they do address that in the episodes to follow. There's a who's who of people that are actually uh, interviewed and we get their thoughts throughout this first episode. We hear from guys like uh, Mike Wilbon, J.A. Adande, Rick Talander, Mark Vansell, Sam Smith, great friend of the show. Billy Wennington, of course, former player on the said team. David Aldridge, Phil Jackson himself. David Stern, late David Stern. Great to hear his reflections as well. We get Bob Costas, Rod Thorne, former Bulls GM at the time. Uh, Brian McIntyre, David Falk. Buzz Peterson, college roommate of Jordan's. Uh, Who else we get? Dolores Jordan, who's looking an absolute treat. She might have stolen the show in episode one. She looks great. I'm not sure exactly how old she is at the moment, but she looks fantastic. Also, we see Roy Williams, who I think, speaking of stealing the show, comes out with two of the greatest lines in the first episode uh, when he's referring to Jordan as a college player. One of the quotes is, when I think of Michael Jordan, he's the only player that could ever turn it on or off, and he never freaking turned it off. That was one of the best lines I've ever heard from Roy Williams. Yep. We also get uh, James Worthy, Patrick Ewing, uh, Billy Packer, who called the 82 NCAA Championship game, UNC versus Georgetown. Great to see Rod Higgins, Jordan's very close mate, who was teammates with him on the Bulls. Kevin Lockery, former coach of the Bulls, awesome to see him make an appearance as well. Uh, Sid the Squid Moncrief, got Pat Riley, Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, Barack Obama, who's referred to as a former Chicago resident.
2: What a line-up. Yeah, <laughs> I know, former Chicago resident. I know they say too. That was great, but... <laughs> I'm not sure if you finished yet, but what a lineup. <laughs> the three people who speak on this uh, episode, this first episode that make me think this is legitimate, David Stern, if you can get David Stern on board and have him speak about it, Jerry Reinsdorf, who speaks quite a lot about it, and Jordan himself. They're
1: the key stakeholders, aren't they?
2: Having MJ include himself in the project, it just gives it another, dare I say it, 23 percent (laughs) uh worth of authenticity it's just you know jordan he has a a press conference face where you can tell that he's just giving you know generic cliched answers he has that face about him while he's doing a press conference he didn't have that on during the recording of this and he's so candid i love it he drops a few f-bombs he does he looks really relaxed and, and I actually have episode one on in front of me at the moment and he's in the middle of his mum reading out that letter that he sent to her when he was in college and to see him relaxed and enjoying that, it's uh, terrific, mate.
1: That was a stroke of genius there from, uh, I guess, Jason Hare. To hand over the iPad and to say, watch this, we both see them reacting to each other, but it was a classic how Jordan, back at this time, was a struggling college student and he said he had like $20 in his bank account. And then he closed the letter by saying that, can she please also uh, forgive the phone bill that he had (laughs) and to send some stamps to him. You look at Jordan these days and he could basically buy the US Post Service if he wanted to. But (laughs) back then, he's actually asking for stamps to be mailed to him, I guess. Just great stuff to have that in there. And it just shows the human element so much more. You nailed it perfectly. We get the media savvy Jordan on 98% of the things we see. This is more of the unfiltered Jordan and it's just it's fantastic to watch.
2: Yeah, he really enjoyed his mum reading that letter aloud to him and, I don't know, it kind of came across as though he wasn't expecting it. No. He thoroughly enjoyed it, didn't he?
1: Yep. You just see him look at the iPad. Yeah, he started smiling. Couldn't hide his smile and he just looked so pleased and proud to see his mum reading back out his note from so many years prior. Um, Just briefly, the other names I can recall that were in the episode, we had Joe O'Neill, Bulls ticket manager at the time. The great Ahmad Rashad, of course, was right there. And, uh, Steve Kerr were just some of the people who featured in episode one. I mean, it's a who's who, just an incredible array of important people that, uh, add to the greatness of this documentary. And after one episode, so excited for what's to come. Um, any other particular points that you'd like to touch on from this episode one? I know you had some notes as well.
2: Well, the other stickler to detail that, yeah, I can be. They spoke about the 1984 preseason for the other rookie. MJ and they showed some footage on the screen and it was actually a scrimmage from the the following season, the 1985 preseason. It included George the Iceman, Gervin. So yeah, I happened to notice that, which I'm sure you did as well.
1: I did as well. There was some great footage though, because you can see Iceman actually defending Jordan on a couple of plays there. Yeah. Uh, So really cool to see uh, the Iceman um, matching up against MJ. And another thing that the producers have done so well, they're not just playing it chronologically. We're going to different moments, uh, decades prior. I think it's a really clever move because now throughout the entire series, they have the option to flash right back to a, a completely different scenario and moment in time that can help set the stage for what's to come in future episodes. It also sort of, um, is of a similar style to, uh, David Halberstam's great book, Playing for Keeps, which does a similar thing where it actually goes back and forwards in time. So I thought that was worth mentioning too.
2: A lot of footage from the 1997 McDonald's Open, which you mentioned before, in Paris, France. And uh, one thing that I noticed during that footage was, who is the number three for the Bulls?
1: I think he was sitting down stretching at the time. I've written his name down somewhere. It was like Gorenk or something, G-O-R-E-N-C, was on the back of his jersey.
2: I googled 1997 McDonald's Open, Goring, like Nazi Goring. (laughs) I paused it on the screen, but I couldn't quite read exactly what the uh, other name was on the back of their jersey.
1: Yeah, maybe he was eating some Nazi Goring at the time, but I think his surname might have finished in the letter C, but through the wonders of technology and editing, mate, let me just have a quick look. Goring, Boris Goring. Boris Goring. There you go. That's who it was, a former Slovenian professional basketball player. How's this? I did not even know this. This is the magic of the internet. Bear in mind, this is Wikipedia, so... Don't hold me to it, please. But it says, In 1997, and pronunciation, I'm sorry about this, Boris Gorink was invited to train with the Chicago Bulls for two months and already signed with them before he injured his knees. He returned to France and signed with Pau Orthez. But isn't that incredible? He was on the McDonald's Open roster as a member of the Bulls. Did not even know that until I happened to see him just in a brief bit of footage I showed on The Last Dance. Quite incredible that uh, these sort of things can even pop up. Even as we're recording this episode, we're actually learning something new about who was part of the roster. Gorink. 46 years old now, apparently. Born on the 3rd of December from Slovenia. How good's the internet? I loved seeing the footage of Marcus and Jeffrey Jordan when they were just playing little tackers. With the basketballs off the side of the court there. That was so cool to see them there. It'd be great memories for them to see themselves all these years on, just over there in France as well. Did you actually hear when Jordan hopped off the bus in the footage, you hear a reporter say, Michael, what do you think of the Eiffel Tower? That, that was the first thing he was asked. I heard that and then I'm intently looking to
2: see if MJ's gonna respond and yeah, you know, he gives him donuts, but <laughs> that'd be like asking
1: Kevin Garnett, when he hopped off the bus in Sydney at the 2000 Olympics. Hey, Kevin, what do you think of the Sydney Harbour Bridge? (laughs) Just give him a chance to experience something first, mate. Just don't yell at something off the top of your head as soon as he hops off the bus. But I guess he only had 10 seconds to make an impression. Marcus and Jeffrey, yeah, are
2: driven the basketball behind their back and bounce passes behind their back to each other. And they're wearing Jordan 13s, which look like they're about three or four sizes too big for them.
1: (laughs) That was great footage. Great to see. How good also, mate, was the footage of Jordan backstage when he was going to appear on a TV show in France and there's an audio guy that's sort of miking him up, no pun intended, and then after he fixes Jordan's audio, holds out a slip of paper and says, can you please sign this? And then he's, he's quickly told off and, and escorted off in handcuffs. And actually, MJ kind of looks behind
2: him at the bloke who's obviously uh, his caretaker at the time and the caretaker is like, nah, that's not happening.
1: That's not happening, champion. <laughs> yeah. That was so good. Oh,
2: I love that footage. Another uh, highlight for me in episode one was MJ's reaction to the traveling cocaine circus line about (laughs) the uh,
1: 84, 85 bulls. I logged into newspapers.com and tried to find said article, and I'm sure that I'll have the authorities on my door pretty soon because my searches were cocaine circus Jordan Cocaine Circus, Chicago Bulls Cocaine. I'm trying to find all the results I could, but it didn't pop up. And usually almost any uh, article that's not just available through Google searches, you'll find on newspapers.com. But I couldn't find that one. But what a terrific story that uh, MJ shared. And he actually was talking about that being the night he was in Peoria, Illinois. Oh, goodness me. Which was his first preseason game as a member of the Bulls, if I'm not mistaken.
2: I nearly fell off the couch when <laughs> he mentioned the word Peoria
1: because... That's the the white whale, Adam. NB85 series. NB85. We break down the whole Jordan campaign from high school, college to the first year in the pros. And we do talk about that with a lot of love, let's be honest.
2: Peoria was the, uh, the first time that MJ appeared in a Bulls uniform uh, in the 84 preseason. Um, and no footage or images, uh, hardly anything exists from the game. When MJ actually said the word Peoria, I almost wet myself. I got that excited. But unfortunately, it didn't go much further than that with the story about the traveling cocaine circus. It just goes back to what I said before about how candid MJ was during the episode to have him tell that story. Because I'm pretty sure that I'd heard that before, that you know he'd walked in on teammates and there were white substances in the room, so on and so forth. But to have him actually tell that story and now that we know when it was, just great, mate.
1: I think it's pretty clear early on in this documentary that you can tell, and this is maybe a silly thing to say, you can tell that Jordan is a fantastic storyteller. When he relayed that story about Peoria and the hotel room, the way he was motioning, the way he was talking, the cadence in his voice, further to what you were saying before, we're used to seeing the media savvy Jordan at interviews and things. You don't often get to see him just relaying a story on, and the way he was explaining it, I was just all in. So I think this is a sign of things to come for the next nine episodes. Wasn't it captivating?
2: As I said, it's what makes the documentary series 23% more legitimate, you know, <laughs> is having MJ on
1: there and telling stories. For context, for those that may not have seen it yet, and hopefully you have watched the episode one, because this is a major spoiler alert. If not... um, Jordan was talking about the contrast between the clean program and how everything was maintained beautifully by Dean Smith at UNC to him entering his first season in the NBA, what he was confronted with when he entered the uh, hotel room of one of his teammates, which turned into a quite a, a memorable story for uh, episode one of this series. Another great moment was Scotty Burrell on the bench.
2: Yeah, I was just about to mention this, how excited he was at winning the McDonald's Open uh, and how quickly he gets shot down.
1: I think Roddy Harper was trying to set him up, actually. You got it. I know Harper was happy for him, and it was, you know, welcome to the championship club, mate. But I think if you watch Harper carefully, he's almost goading <laughs> Burrell. Harper says, your first championship, congratulations, dog. And Scott Burrell says, can I get a hug too, to MJ? <laughs> and That's when you see Harper almost sort of nudging into him as if to say, there's no chance you're going to get a hug in return, mate. So good luck with that. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. Scott played it really well. I don't think he really expected a hug. <laughs> I think it was more like, oh, I'm going to just test the waters and see what happens. Jordan gives him a, a look. Oh, <laughs> man,
2: what a look that was. Kind of loosened up a little bit and spoke to him, but that initial look yeah. was a killer.
1: Then the facial expression of Scott went from pure joy to, oh my goodness, <laughs> in the space of half a second. Uh-oh. It was so good, that footage. It was really good. Uh may have been one of the highlights of the episode for mine. I'm looking at it right now, and Harp's very happy with himself. Uh, we get to see Phil Jackson back at his office uh, up at the Birdo Center back in Chicago. Did you notice the Christmas card on his desk from Dennis Rodman? Yes, I did. I've shared it on my Instagram account, well, around about Christmas last year, I guess, obviously, and uh, it's a great image of of Dennis dressed up as like a an angel, his hands clasped and looking to the sky, and I think it said, to Coach Jackson, happy holidays from the Rodman group. That was a little Easter egg, even though it was Christmas we're talking about, Dennis's Christmas card on the desk. And then we get to see Phil Jackson hold up the playbook for the would-be Last Dance, which was perfectly titled by Phil. And then we also get to see Bill Wennington discussing the the team handbook. Phil Jackson's words become very prescient uh, as the season would come on, and we're talking about it 22 years later. So it just sets the scene beautifully for what's to come. That's uh, episode one to a T. All right, mate. Well, thanks again for joining me on this episode and being a part of the show as always. Until we meet again on the dance floor next episode, Aaron, (laughs) anything you'd like to add? Great for you to
2: have me, and uh, it was great to talk about the last (laughs) (laughs) giddy-up.
1: My guest today enjoyed a great four-year career at the University of Connecticut. He is an eight-year NBA veteran and played 101 of a possible 103 games as a member of the world champion Chicago Bulls in 1998. Scott Burrell, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. Ah, it's great to have you on the show and uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Your Bulls started the 1998 preseason in France at the McDonald's Championship in Paris. Yes. I'll ask you about a very memorable scene from episode one of The Last Dance in, in a moment. But what stands out to you most about that trip to Paris and just the preseason with the Bulls before we even get into the regular season itself?
0: Well, for me, it was, it was a good trip to get away from Chicago, get away from every day practice in the Burdo Center because I was new to the team. And what's a better way to, to build camaraderie and, and to understand know your teammates better than to take a six-hour trip from Chicago to France, number one, and then play out of the country where you're starting a new season with a new team, with a bunch of guys that don't know you. You're trying to fit in, trying to feel comfortable, and, and just understand what it takes to be a champion. That first game in, over in France was eye-opening thing. I knew how good the Bulls were. I never knew how many people followed the Bulls worldly.
1: You learned that pretty quickly, I'm sure, based on the footage that we see in the start of The Last Dance, Episode 1.
0: It was amazing. I mean, as soon as we landed at the hotel, the crowd, the buzz was amazing.
1: There's an amazing scene from that McDonald's championship in Paris that features in Episode 1 of The Last Dance. Uh, You're on the bench celebrating the win with Ron Harper, and then you give him a hug, and then (laughs) you look to your left, yeah, where Jordan is seated, and uh, he doesn't show quite as much enthusiasm <laughs> and sort of denies your hug. Can you just explain that scenario? That's a fantastic
0: moment. If people know me, they know I was trying to bait MJ to, to crack a smile, because MJ, you know, all his business. Harper joking, and I knew MJ wasn't going to crack a smile. Harper gave me a hug. When I looked at MJ, I knew he wasn't going to, but I just wanted <laughs> him to crack a smile. But I did get a little smirk out of him, so I knew I got to him a little bit. Funny, one of his old teammates from North Carolina who I'm a good friends with Joe Wolf called me, said you got him, he, he smirked, he smirked. It worked, it worked. Because he knows me and I'm a jokester and I enjoy I enjoy every bit a bit of life.
1: Joe Wolf is a former guest. Uh, he's been on my podcast in the past and he shared some of his experiences and yeah, he's a really nice guy. So glad to hear that he reached out to you. Just in general, over those first two episodes, and you may have seen more than that if you had any screeners ahead of time or not, but what did you make with the first couple of episodes and, and how much Memories just came flooding back based on the, the two hours or so that we've seen thus far.
0: I loved every bit of it. Anytime you get to see Michael vulnerable and open up and just relaxed, because we never get to see him in interviews. He doesn't do any interviews. It's awesome to see. Um, he, he's like the mythical guy. You never see of him or you never hear of him until something big comes up. And when he opens up and tells you about the season, the things he thought about, the things he had to do, it's just great to think about reliving that, Seeing it and just hearing him, he t- speaks with so much intensity, conviction. It gets you fired up. And then when you see him, they showed the episode when he played the, the Celtics. You're like, damn, that was a bad boy. <laughs> it's awesome to see.
1: Yeah, there's some fantastic footage on there that uh, sets the scene for the 1998 season, and it really cleverly mixes the the past with 1998 and also 2020 uh, as far as the interviews go. Um, Episode two of The Last Dance uh, focuses considerably on Scotty Pippen, and he was rehabbing from the preseason surgery and and didn't play his first game until into January of 98. Um, How was your adjustment playing with the Bulls without Scotty in the lineup compared to when he did come back in uh, mid-January or so, Scott?
0: We needed Scotty bad to win, and I wish I was there a little bit earlier to learn the offense, to feel comfortable, to fit in more. 'Cause I would have been more productive early in the season. But it, it just took me a little while to get comfortable. But I was happy when Scotty got back. It also made me relax more because obviously he's our he's our other second stud on the team. And learn from him. When you learn from two special players, you can only get better mentally, physically. I was happy to have him back and we needed him to have him come back because he's one another, one of our great leaders and one of our great players. So we would never like been in a situation where we were. We did get better as the season went on, but we needed Sky to put us over the top to to win that second championship.
1: A lot of people probably know you from the 98 Bulls, but you had a great career at UConn. And then before that, you were um, a great player in Charlotte as well. Most notably, probably the 1995 season was one of your best uh, at that time in your second year with the Hornets. What was the experience like of playing with the Hornets and uh, achieving what you had there? And then you had a quick stint in Golden State before becoming a member of the of the Bulls in 1998. How did you sort of contrast what you'd experienced prior to joining the Bulls?
0: Yeah, I played with some really good players, Alonzo Mourning, Larry Johnson, Hersey Hawkins, Muggsy Bogues, and, and I enjoyed every minute of that. But, you know, we were all young at that time, and every time someone was – their contract was up coming up, we would get traded. So we never got to grow as a team – to see if we could become a great championship team. And like you said, I probably one of my best years there. I was having 13-a-game. A hmm. um, and, and I was healthy at that time. I've had a lot of injuries since that those years, and, and it might have slowed me down a little bit. But as I got traded to Golden State, you know, I got traded to a team that was struggling. Great experience out in Oakland. I was happy to be traded, um, and nothing against Golden State, I was happy to be traded to Chicago where you get reborn and rejuvenated, and, and you feel like this might be my only chance to win a championship. And to play with the three Hall of Famers and the two or three Hall of Fame coaches and the great coaching staff I played with in Chicago, you cannot not get better. And I loved every bit of, of learning, every bit of the competition. I loved the team camaraderie. And there was one goal and that was win championships compared to other goals who were trying to learn how to win championships. They knew how to do it. They had a blueprint to do it in Chicago. And I had to conform to that blueprint to learn how to win.
1: Thanks for elaborating on your experiences. It's great to hear from uh, somebody who is a member of the 98 team. Um, Now, through uh, episode two of The Last Dance, the relationship between Bulls GM Jerry Krause, certain players, and of course, notably Coach Phil Jackson, is quite abrasive to say the least. Um, How much interaction did you have with Krause in your time in Chicago and how would you maybe describe your dealings with him?
0: Only the trade, really. You know, he was a baseball guy, so we talked baseball a little bit. We didn't talk much. I mean, I think the situation between management and the players, you know, a group of people stayed away from each other. So nobody really got to know each other as well, besides obviously the big the big players in the picture. Um, but everybody else never really got to talk to management. You know, you saw the friction between Scotty, Michael, and the front office, but it didn't affect the team because a team's goal was just to win. It's amazing to see how much of the burden that Michael and Scotty played under and still performed at the highest level and didn't let... Contract negotiations or disagreements with, with management affect the way they played on the court.
1: You mentioned baseball there a moment ago. Some people may not know that you had a great career in baseball before you had a decision to make there about which way to go. Um, did you talk much baseball? Given Jordan's uh, foray into playing when he took a, a year or two off,
0: I was smart. See, I'm better than him in baseball, so I did not want to bring it up. <laughs> so no, no. Um, so, but I do remember his first hit was against one of my teammates with the with the Blue Jays, Joe Ganote, when he was in the minor. So I talked to Joe after he gave up his first hit, and we I, I, talked about it and laughed. I just laughed about it.
1: Okay, there you go. Now, I had a quick look over at basketballreference.com before we chatted today, and you had two terrific postseason games with the Bulls on the way to the title. In the series-clinching win at New Jersey in round one, you came off the bench and had 23 points in 24 minutes on 9 of 11 shooting and 3 of 5 from long range, so a fantastic effort.
0: I like to call that (laughs) MJ-like.
1: That was definitely MJ-like.
0: I'm just joking. That
1: was a great performance. Um, How satisfying was it for you to have a performance like that in a clinching game, no less, uh, on a playoff squad, which would ultimately go on to win the title?
0: Anytime you could help. All you want to do is be productive, help the team, do your job when you're called upon. And like you said, that game, I I had a big game. I was productive, and I just felt good shooting the ball. And my teammates, they found me, you know, and they they had confidence in in, in me to keep looking for me.
1: Now, Game 3 of the 1998 Finals is quite a unique one for a few reasons, but most notably, your Bulls strangled the Utah Jazz. It was a 42-point win. Uh, mm-hmm. Held them to only 54 points. And in that game yourself, off the bench, you scored 10 points on four of five shooting. You had nine rebounds as well and a couple of steals in 24 minutes. Um, what do you either remember about that particular game or just what's your takeaway from your NBA Finals experience in
0: 1998? That's a great question, For me, being a new guy there, there was three other new guys there, Rusty LaRue, Keith Booth, and Joe Klein. But I'm really the only one that got some minutes that season. So the other guys have been there two other times in a row or five out of seven times in a row. For me, it was such a huge moment in my life. It was hard to to find the place to relax your mind because you're thinking, will I ever get there? But the other guys, I'm sure, were like, this is like another day in the park. We've been here before. We know how to do it. So it's kind of like you're trying to compose yourself. At the same time, not trying to mess up, but it was a great learning experience. And if you can play in the NBA finals and play with Michael Jordan and Scotty and Dennis and Hunter Phil and the rest of the staff, it prepares you for life. And I think finding composure during those finals, when the world is watching, playing for one of the greatest teams of all time, with the greatest player of all time, and you find a way to relax your mind, put yourself in that spot in the presence of, of trying to win a championship, you know you've reached your, your, your max in your sport and you you can accomplish anything. And that, that's what I learned from that situation.
1: There's eight episodes left in the series, so I can't wait for the next ones to unfold. But what are you maybe hoping to see gets uh, a deeper dive and a look into as the remainder of the episodes come to be?
0: I just want to hear what MJ has to say about everyone. <laughs> that's what I can't wait for. Because <laughs> you don't know what he's going to say. He can say what he wants. You don't know what he's going to say. So I'm just waiting to hear what comes out of his mouth. But <laughs> the best part about the whole thing is, have you noticed what's beside him during episode one and two?
1: Yeah, he's had a drink next to him and some cigars.
0: <laughs> and you see it getting lower and lower every time, every episode. So I can't wait to see three, four, five, six, seven, eight, to see if this gets refilled and he starts <laughs> drinking again. I love just let him be vulnerable and talking about all the episodes and all the little things he had to deal with um, throughout the season. I know it's going to get rough for me at one point when he rides me really hard later on in the episodes, but... Like I tell everybody, it's tough love, hard nose coaching. He needs me to get better to help him uh, to win championships. He doesn't care about hurting my feelings, which I don't expect it to. His job is to make me better, and my job is to help that team win when I'm called upon.
1: Well said. I heard you on a few different podcast episodes and some TV appearances recently. I think your approach to that has been fantastic. At the moment, you're currently coaching at um, Southern Connecticut State, and I believe you're wearing the polo at the moment. How is your... Coaching um, beliefs been molded by what you've experienced over your NBA career, but also having been coached by one of the all-time greats in Phil Jackson, no less as well. What impact has that had
0: on you over the years, Scott? I think Phil did a great job of understanding players' emotions, personalities. I try to do the same. Um, You know when you got to be tough on guys, you know when you got to pull the reins back and be uh, a father figure or or understand their mental state. Michael has taught me how to coach tough, and and how to be tough. So when I'm in a situation, I know how to be more composed, work through it, think it out, and and figure a a way to be successful. I can't push my guys the way Michael pushed me in this day and age. Number one, there's many reasons why. Number two, um, we can't really get into because you get yourself in trouble for pushing kids hard. And it's not being verbally abusive. um, It's not being too tough. It just, I don't know if kids love and compete like Michael wanted you to compete. So what I learned from them from, from those guys that are playing that, in that era. we have got to recruit self-motivated players that want to be great. And as I recruit now, I try to find self-motivated guys. They don't have to maybe be the most talented, but someone that wants to get better. Someone wants to compete every day. Someone wants to be the best in the classroom. Those are guys you need to be successful on and off the court. And if you have guys that are talented but don't give you the best effort, it's going to drive you crazy trying to, trying to get the most out of them. So you learn how to push but also be kind and gentle and pull back a little bit and and let them be kids at the same time.
1: Very well said. Hopefully in the future, I'd love to get you back on the show and do a more of a deep dive on your whole career in hoops, but I really appreciate you taking time out to talk about the last dance and some of your experiences. Uh, You're a key member of the 98 Bulls, and uh, it's been a pleasure to have this chance to interact with you and uh, have you on the show and talk about your experiences, Scott. Thanks very much.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. I need you to do me a favor now.
1: Yeah, sure, I can do that. What can I do for you?
0: Australian basketball is awesome. I love watching them play in the Olympics and world championships. I want to find some of that talent to bring them over there at Southern. Okay. So you got to help me now.
1: <laughs> I'll put this out as much as I can and we'll see where it reaches. There are more and more players from Australia who uh, are heading over to the U.S. to try and uh, apply their trade over there. So you never know who actually hears it and who might uh, take up on that offer there. Thanks again, Scott. I know you're a busy guy. You said before we got recording, you had four different uh, chats that you had already been arranged for for today. So thanks again for taking time to
0: to speak to some guy in Australia. Anytime. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'd love to go over to visit Australia at one point in my life. I heard you have a lot of poisonous snakes though. That's what I heard. We've got snakes, spiders.
1: We've got all kinds of nasties over here.
0: (laughs) Snakes are what's scaring me. So I won't go to the outback. I'll just stay in the city.
1: (laughs) I don't go to the outback and I live in Australia. So (laughs) it's, it's a good idea. Don't do that. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Send me an email. Audio clips are welcome. inallairness at gmail.com Time to share another great review from a fan of the show. Thanks to 100Linden via Apple Podcasts USA. More on that username in a moment. It's titled Always Informative and it reads, Enjoy the trips down memory lane. Thank you 100Linden aka Noah Kozlov who is the co-host, along with Adam Stanko, on Rejecting the Screen, a great podcast which is part of the Locked On Sports Podcast Network. Definitely check out those guys and their podcast. It's a great listen every week. Much appreciated, Noah. Thanks for the review, mate. Worldwide, the show now has 137 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of four and a half stars, 82 reviews across all providers. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. You can stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and more. Simply email me in all airness, at gmail.com and I'll add you to the list of fans you can subscribe to my show in various ways search for in all airness three words on your podcast app of choice the show is on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts overcast android and more thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in all Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.